Reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus put before the crowds another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it's the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. And when it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of God is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God, amen. amen. Please be seated. The philosopher Plato once said, at the touch of love, everyone becomes a poet. I would add, at the touch of love, everyone becomes a storyteller, an artist, a music maker. At the touch of love, everyone becomes aware, awakened, enlivened, empowered. But notice that Plato does not say, at the thought of love. He does not say in a compelling statement about love. He does not say in a philosophical or even theological treatise on love, but at the touch of love. The overt act, the real and tangible expression given to the object of its affection. Well, what does that look like? It looks a lot like Jacob, especially in year eight. You heard the story. Mark read it to us beautifully. Laban had these two daughters. Leah was the elder. Rachel was the younger. Jacob loved Rachel, and he was willing to do whatever it took. Whatever work required of him to marry her, Jacob actually agreed to work for Laban for seven strenuous years for the privilege of marrying Rachel. Now, I have to tell you, that seems excessive to me. <laughs> when I decided that it was mean and right so to do to marry Sandy, all I had to do was call up her mother. Now, she is the matriarch of the family, and she does live in Old Metairie, and I did have to go there and sit down with her and talk to her and ask permission, and I was very nervous, and I sweated bullets. But she did not even require that I bring her boxer Lucy treats, which I did because I'm no fool and I love Lucy. But 
Jacob. Oh, my goodness. Way beyond a mere interview, way beyond simply asking for her hand in marriage, he worked and toiled and labored for 2,555 days. That is a long time. And then the day finally came for his marriage to lovely Rachel, and Laban tricked him into marrying Leah, his eldest daughter, excusing this grave injustice by telling Jacob, Oh, sorry, did I forget to mention that? The elder around here is always given in marriage first, but today is your lucky day, Jacob. You just work for me another seven years and you can marry Rachel. And Jacob immediately consulted his attorney. <laughs> he filed a lawsuit. He got on social media. He badmouthed his father-in-law. He tucked his tail, gathered up all of his camels, and fled. He did not flee. He simply agreed. He worked for seven more years. This sounds like a country western song. <laughs> but what it really is, is what true love looks like. Willing to hang in there. <laughs> I can hear the poet Jacob, ah, 14 years is but a fleeting moment compared to the eternity of loving you, sweet Rachel. And in the meantime, I've even learned to love your sister. <laughs> Now it really does sound like a country western song. Thank you, Jacob, for your profound lesson on love. No wonder you were chosen to be the father of a movement to share God's love with the whole world, starting from an unlikely, tiny, prickly, barren plot of land in the Middle East. I'm afraid your descendants may have disappointed you, but you got them off on the right track, loving unconditionally. And then there's that powerful chapter from the letter to the Romans. It's chapter 8. We hear it a lot at funerals because it is a glimpse of what true love looks like at a funeral. Those who have lost their loved one are at the lowest point in their lives. And this passage reminds us that whatever hardship or challenge or loss we encounter, even when we were at the lowest place, God's love shows up. Because nothing can separate us from Christ's love, not persecution or poverty or death. You go lower, you go high, his love will meet you right there. Now maybe in your life, at a particularly low place, you somehow finally and fully came to understand what love looks like and feels like and acts like and how God's loving touch in that most dire of circumstances was able in that moment to lift you up and bring you back home against all the odds. I love both of these passages. They help us understand what love really looks like, but I have another story for you this morning. It is a powerful story that came as a gift to me just about a week ago. It was shared with me by my new granddaughter, Winter's other grandpa, who lives in California. Now, don't worry, he has relatives in the panhandle, so he's okay. <laughs> His name is Emil, and he is a wonderful man. And a few years ago, he suffered the greatest loss in his life when his wife of many years succumbed to cancer. 
And Emil, after a time of grieving that loss, decided that he wasn't getting any younger. He was pushing age 70. So he was going to get back out there and try to find love and companionship again. And sure enough, he met a lady by the name, a name of Naomi who had a dog, which is always a good sign. The dog's name was Apollo. And they decided they'd take off together with Apollo in their camper van, and they would see the world together, or at least North America. And they traveled far. In fact, they traveled all the way to Newfoundland. And in Newfoundland, they traveled to the remotest part of a remote place, a mostly deserted beach called Portugal Cove South. Now, two days before they had arrived there, they found themselves on another remote beach because those are the only beaches in Newfoundland. <laughs> and while they were there, there was a Vietnamese family, the Trans, and they were having a barbecue on the beach. And Mrs. Tran saw them and ran up to them and invited them to come and join them for the barbecue. And they did. And they had a wonderful time. And then Mrs. Tran invited them to come to her home. And St. John's, that she wanted to cook a meal for them. But they were headed in the opposite direction. Mrs. Tran and Naomi exchanged phone numbers, probably thinking they'd never see each other again. The next evening, they found another remote beach that was mostly locals, and there they were invited to join a big group of fishermen for a fish fry. And they insisted they help polish off 13 cases of Canadian beer. There were eight fishermen, by the way, so you can do the math. <laughs> Emil does not drink, but he didn't want to be rude, so he kept hiding the beers under his chair. And finally, Emil and Naomi told them, look, it's getting late, we have to go to sleep. And they went to their van, but even then, the men knocked on the door later in the evening with a giant plate of fried fish telling them, you didn't eat enough. Take this in case you get hungry in the middle of the night. You talk about the kindness of strangers. They weren't sure where they were exactly, but they knew that they were not in Los Angeles anymore. <laughs> So they pulled up to Portugal Cove South and they stopped there for a while because the grunion were running and the whales were just going off everywhere. If you've ever seen that, it's one of the most spectacular sights on earth. It was so beautiful. Another reminder that God has the whole world in his hands and what a wonderful world it can be. One of the fishermen apparently headed back home recognized their van and stopped again and invited them to come and park their van under his carport and stay in his house and sleep in their beds and eat a home-cooked meal, telling them it's so much more comfortable in the house. But they decided to stay on the beach because not far from them, a single young woman in an old beat-up van, it was obvious she didn't have much, but she had asked them if they would mind spending the night there on that beach because she would feel safer knowing that they were there and she was not there all alone on that deserted beach. So they did. But then later that evening, they were surprised to hear another loud banging on their van window and they reminded themselves that they were in Canada and not in Los Angeles so they didn't have to shoot anyone. <laughs> And he opened the door, and there was this old sort of hobo-looking fella, he said. 
who had a big smile on his face, and he extended his hand, and he said, Welcome to Newfoundland. I'm Bruce Holleran, and everybody in Newfoundland knows me. And I'll tell you what, if you need anything while you're here, I mean anything at all, you just let me know. Here's my number, and they took it thinking they'd never see him again. But I tell you what, Naomi and Emil and Apollo went to bed that night feeling pretty good about life, feeling pretty good about people and about being on a beautiful beach on the edge of nowhere in Newfoundland. But at 2.30 in the morning, everything changed. There was a startling sound, like a pop under the bed. Emil heard Naomi scream, the van is on fire. And as he looked up, he could see that there were flames everywhere. He scrambled to escape and he tripped. And he literally fell into the flames next to the bed. And he could see the back door of the van, but he could also see that his bicycle was blocking access. And in that moment, he says, his life flashed before him and he thought he would never see another dawn, never see his children or his grandchild. Somehow he spotted the side door and miraculously propped himself up and made it there, but by that time his hands were badly burned and everything was on fire, so he could not even grasp the handle to open the door, but the door just flung open. He'll tell you he's not sure who opened the door, but it opened. He stumbled onto the beach and they somehow managed to get Apollo out, but everything else, their phones, their food, their wallets, their passports, their clothes, their money, burned, gone. And standing on the beach in his underwear, Emil badly burned, it was their turn to knock on the door. They knocked on that young woman's van, the one who had asked them to stay there on her behalf so that she would feel safer she didn't have much, but she took them into her modest space and she gave them what she did have. Clothes for Naomi, a blanket for Emil, water for Apollo, and she called the fire department and the ambulance. It took two hours for the ambulance to arrive and another two to get him to the hospital in St. John's. And on the way, Emil began to think about all of those people who had reached out to them for no reason and just shown him such kindness and connection. And he asked the EMS crew, hey, by the way, do you know a fellow by the name of Bruce Holleran? And they said, of course, everybody in Newfoundland knows him. Well, could you call him for us? Of course, I've got him on speed dial. They got to the hospital and Naomi and Apollo were turned away because the official hospital policy was no dogs allowed under any circumstances, but the nurses were trained not just in the art of medical care, but in the art of love. And they decided that policy was not nearly as important as people. And so as Apollo sat patiently waiting in that waiting room, a lady waiting for her loved one to receive care overheard the nurse's conversation and immediately went to the store and returned with a giant bag of dog food for Apollo. 
The hospital staff went to work to find them clothes and shoes and a suitcase. Upon his release from the hospital, the Red Cross arranged for them to stay in a local motel and at the motel restaurant, when asked what they wanted to eat, they said, we just want a, a large pizza. And the manager came over and said, oh no, I'm bringing you everything on the menu and it's on us. Meanwhile, Mrs. Tran had arrived with this gigantic box of food and supplies and Mr. Tran had gone to the men's store and bought Emil a whole new wardrobe. Turned out Mrs. Tran had been adopted by a Canadian lady during the Vietnam War and her mom, now well into her 80s, insisted on driving Emil and Naomi to get their passport photos. But while she was driving, she passed out and started turning blue. Hollywood could not make this up. They thought that she was dead. Somehow they got off the road and she came to. And when she came to, she apologized for passing out <laughs> and drove them on to get their photos. Meanwhile, Bruce Holleran drove four hours round trip to the police station on their behalf to get an official report so the U.S. Embassy in Halifax would issue them temporary passports. And the trans were finally able to provide that home-cooked meal. At the U.S. Embassy in Halifax, as Naomi went to try to get $160 in U.S. dollars in exact change, Abel waited outside. He was burned over his body. He had a couple of plastic bags of supplies and clothes and a tired, grungy-looking, dirty dog. And he said of his appearance, I will never judge a homeless person again. On the way back home at both the airports in St. John's and Halifax, the airlines told them that under absolutely no circumstances were dogs allowed on flights. And in both cases, the gate agents listened to their story and had compassion. And in the name of love, broke the rules so that Apollo could get home. As Emil shared this story with me, the day our granddaughter was being born, as we stood outside that hospital, he said to me, this story is not about a fire. This story is about love. Years ago, the great theologian, priest, and paleontologist, Pierre Tilhard de Chardin, wrote these powerful words. Someday, after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And then, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. So perhaps the story is about fire. But not the fire that threatens, consumes, or destroys. The fire that inflames and impassions and empowers our hearts. It does not take much, Jesus said. 
just a seed's worth. But it's so powerful and so precious and so valuable that nothing else matters in this life. We can lose everything, but if we still have love, we will not need anything. For it is only love that can save and feed and rescue and heal and change us. It is the magic, even miraculous touch that turns all of us into poets, into lovers, into friends, and into followers of the greatest lover the world has ever known.